turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. You see it there on your screen. As you're making your way there, I'm going to pause and we're going to pray. Father God, it's our privilege and amazingly your pleasure for us to open your word. So I ask that you would speak, that uh, you would make known to us mysteries hidden for the ages now revealed in Christ, that we would grow in the knowledge of you, and that all this would Bring praise to your name. And so we just simply ask that you would uh, fill up what's lacking and give us what's needed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it has been on my heart in kind of all spheres of life to make clear um, the direction where we're going, the purpose for why we exist, and the why for how we do those things, get to where we're going and continue in the way that we should be existing. And so one of those ways in which I feel like I've failed you over the years is by not doing that. And so it's been, uh, it's been my mission, um, my job these past three weeks to make this clear to us. And so I first started with giving a discourse of how we are to love God and then love our neighbor. That would be the effort of our lives. That would be the direction, the purpose, the vision. That would be everything to us. And you can unpack each of those commandments um, for days, and certainly that's what we're going to do, right, throughout our time here on earth, throughout our sanctification process, or being made like Christ, and that was what we tackled last week, and we couched it under the idea of reforming, always removing the things that don't belong to holiness and Christ-likeness, that don't belong to what it means for his church, his bride, to be prepared, and that in that, in a word, is sanctification. And so we're never perfect in loving God, we're never perfect in loving our neighbor, but we're moving that direction. And so we're always seeking to do that, to be more like Christ. And so today I want to talk about the method of ministry for Christ-likeness, or how we actually get there. And I've titled this The Ministry for Maturity. And I love how Paul speaks in Colossians of how this is accomplished. This Colossians is where I always go, especially with new members or people I'm speaking with about the ministry to uh, bring purpose to it or to explain why I exist um, for your sake and what does that mean. And I, I know no other place that Paul does this better or clearer 
than in the book of or the letter to the Colossians. So let's first look at this stewardship of service. This is what we're going to examine in verses 24 and 25 of Colossians chapter 1. What I mean by stewardship, or what is meant in the definition of stewardship, especially in the context of Scripture, is God's method of tending to or managing the affairs of a group of people. And so when Paul's getting ready to speak here about the stewardship that's been handed to him, that means that he has been given a responsibility from God and the method in carrying out that responsibility. And so while we're speaking today about Paul's role for the sake of the body, my role for the sake of the body, where we are speaking uh, kind of also about all our roles uh, in the ministry of the body. Because we know from Ephesians chapter 4 that the, the ministry or the equipping for ministry is for all the saints. That each member has a, a role or a point of service in this church or in the church at large of Christ. You were... You were fit in and grafted in as Gentiles, as most of us are, all of us are, uh, into a certain place. And it's, and it's no um, small thing, it's no happenstance that God would use the image of the body to speak about his church. Because he designed the human physical body and he put its parts together in specific places to carry out specific functions and to work in a most efficient way to bring him glory. And so the church, as the body of Christ, functions in the very same way. And you can read about that in 1 Corinthians 11 through 14. A description of the church and its members and how we all fit together and the need that we have for one another. And we do all that, we fit within the body and carry out our functions as our spiritual stewardship, looking to God, uh, how he wants us to do it. Because we want to glorify him with what he's given us. And so those, that stewardship would be your gifts or your place within the body to exercise those things that God's given you for the building up of his body. And all of this is leading to the, that culmination where this, this bride, this this church that has been made ready to be presented to Jesus, holy, spotless, and blameless, is in fact that very thing. So not only do I play a role in that, but you play a role in that. And so hear me throughout this sermon. That I'm not just speaking uh, you know, like Paul as an under-shepherd of the church or somebody who's got that stewardship, but, but listen to it in light of where you fit in and where your role is. Now we know from Ephesians 4.11, and you can put a finger there because we'll go back to Ephesians 4 often today, that Jesus right, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, and in verse 12 in Ephesians 4 tells you why. So his method or his stewardship for building up the body of Christ, according to Ephesians 4.12, is to use these things to do that. So in order to better understand where Paul is writing from and, and, 
what exactly he's saying here, uh, we need to know the context of this letter. Paul is writing from prison. You can read about that in chapter 4. Uh, in Rome, about the same time he wrote Philemon. And if you, if you compare the two letters, although Philemon is extremely short, right? Uh, you'll see very uh, similar things, similar languages, phrases, words. And so that's where Paul is. That's what he's thinking. So when you read about his sufferings here, like I'm going to read to you, keep that in mind. Verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings, for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Now we'll start in verse 24. And sometimes when you read the Bible, especially Paul, because Peter also recognizes sometimes Paul's hard to read, uh, you, you get these phrases that seem kind of Christianese to us, that need further defining. So you, the, the first one that comes up is, what does it mean that in Paul's suffering, he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? And I think it's more simple than we seem to understand. It doesn't mean that Christ is lacking in affliction. Obviously, he endured the fullness of affliction for our sake. But what Paul is meaning here in filling up what's lacking is he is fulfilling or his current suffering in prison on account of the gospel for the church is fulfilling future suffering of those who are to suffer for the gospel. So in other words, it's ordained that this would take place. In other words, it's proving that Paul is serving a different kingdom uh, while he's behind enemy lines in a different world. And it's, and it's proving again that this world is in sin, in darkness, and is rejecting the light. Paul is in prison for nothing other than proclaiming the gospel. If you think about that just on the surface, because it still happens often today, it's one of the most absurd things to be afflicted for or for people to afflict you for. It's the greatest thing to be afflicted for, but the, it's the weirdest thing for people to afflict you for because you are telling them good news and they put you in prison for it or they kill you for it or they hurt you economically for it. For nothing other than telling them the truth and then the good news of how the truth of you being a sinner can be reconciled with the holy God. And people get afflicted for that all the time and always will. Which, if you want a great case for defending the faith and the reality and truth of it, that would be one. Why are you putting these people in prison? Why do you hate Christians so much? Some more context to talking about what's lacking in afflictions. Philippians 2.30, Paul's talking about a fellow worker of his, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. 
So <clears throat> you have to understand that when we read the word lacking in our English versions, a lot of times the context of that Greek word is that it's a fulfilling or what is to come. And oftentimes that has to do with suffering. Remember when Jesus speaks to, oh my gosh, I forget his name, but the one who's, who's going to come to Paul after three days of Paul being blind after um, salvation and, and speak to him and then Paul's scales, there you go. And, uh, and remember what Jesus says to him. He says, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer. In other words, Paul is going to be this great light and bastion for the gospel, and he is going to suffer on account of that in a way that most people have never suffered or will ever suffer. And that, and that Jesus is going to sustain him in the midst of unbelievable suffering to continue to proclaim the gospel and to continue to suffer for it. Now, the purpose isn't that Paul would just suffer because he deserves it, right? But it's, it's this. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 10, Paul writes, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But here's the key. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So, suffering orients us in the right mind and heart and spirit and realizing that we are in complete and utter need of God. And when he sustains us, when he keeps us, when he delivers us, that furthers the strength of our faith and brings him further glory in our lives. And the gospel continues. Or the gospel flourishes. And Paul becomes an unmovable force for the gospel, so much so uh, that, we'll, that uh, later on it's, it's found out in Acts 19, I believe, that even the demons know who Paul is. That's quite an amazing reputation. That even in the spiritual realms, you are known for being this vessel of righteousness who will proclaim the gospel without disruption. That you can't be hindered in it because, like Paul learned in 2 Corinthians, uh, he knows to rely on God as power. And there is no greater power in all the universe to rely on. In verse 25 of Colossians 1, Paul's making known to them, the church, that because of the church, or of the church, he became a minister. According to that responsibility, or that stewardship, or that work that God gave him to do, and that was in order to make the word of God fully known to them. So in other words, you can go all the way back up to verse 23 and find that Paul is a minister because he's serving the hope of the gospel. 
You can go to Ephesians 4.12 and find that he's a minister to serve the building up of the body. And so we need to investigate what these people are. Why God would use them as this method to communicate his hope. So when I think about the fact that he uses ministers to communicate his hope, and think again of the fact that they're often referred to as shepherds throughout the scriptures, that that word is interchangeable with overseer, elder, pastor, shepherd, I think about the incarnation. That you can go all the way back to the birth of Jesus and see a foreshadowing of how God is going to communicate his hope to the world. And he's going to give a stewardship to these people that he's going to recognize as shepherds. So you can go to Luke 2, 17 and 18 and read this. And when they saw it, the shepherds, seeing the angels come and speak to them, and an angel of the Lord, they made known this, or when they, after that, then they arrive at the uh, manger and see Jesus and Mary. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. So do you see some foreshadowing there? The shepherds get this great revelation. They get this announcement given to them. God sends an angel of his and he communicates to them what has happened in Bethlehem. Then the shepherds go and they see him. And they worship and then they make known what is true. They communicate the hope of the gospel. And people listened and are blown away. Mary even listens and is blown away. And I love this phrase that Paul uses at the end of verse 25 to make the word of God fully known. The idea is of filling a container completely. So in one essence, the work of, of making the word of God fully known is impossible this side of heaven. To fill up your container of spiritual knowledge and of the knowledge of the Lord completely is impossible. So I always have work to do, which is good news. But that's what we're striving towards. And in verse 26, it says, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. So you see Paul use that mystery language a bit. And it means that there's a secret revealed to his saints. And we saw last week that God's the one that must reveal that secret. And we already know through Paul's writings, and we'll look at it in a, in a little bit, but that secret is Christ. And, and we saw God has to reveal him, make him known among us. And he does do that. Let's look to Ephesians 3, 18, or 8 through 13. Paul says, To me, though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places 
This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In, him, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So we see that the purpose of God in, in Jesus coming and being revealed to his people and the church now being inaugurated in his name through his blood, built on this foundation that he is Lord, is that mystery now revealed. Hebrews tells us that long ago God spoke through the prophets to our fathers, but now he has made known to us Christ, and he speaks through him. You are a benefactor of what all the prophets looked forward to. They didn't see it, but you see it. And they looked forward and, and wrote so that you would see. Peter tells us that. So that this prophecy would be realized in Christ and you would see it all come together. And we are those benefactors of the mystery revealed. He also writes in chapter 2 of this letter to the Colossians in hopes that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So it's not like we're sitting on the edge of our seats saying, what is the mystery uh, hidden for the ages that has to be revealed? It's been revealed. It's Christ. He's revealed him. We have a, a, a fullness of, of the, the revelation of God that has not been around very long in the grand scheme of human history. Not even half of it. And, and you and I exist in that time where it's fully known. So to the saints... God chose to reveal how we are in Christ, our righteousness. Therefore, because he revealed that to us, we hope for glory. You see how the, the Pharisees and Sadducees were all confused on what they should hope for? The Sadducees didn't even believe in a resurrection. So really, there was no hope for them. They were, they were just trying to be legalistic and obedient to Yahweh. But you and I, because we have this mystery revealed, because we have the resurrection, because we have the promise of what is yet to come, we hope for that glory like Jesus did in John 17. He's, he's praying to the Father that he would uh, restore to him or bring him back to the glory that he had with him before the world was created. And he endures the shame of the cross, right? For the glory that is set before him. And so if, if the mystery is Christ, then you and I need to have the same hope that he has, glory. And we're being built up in that hope. But if he is that hope, or if he is where we get that hope, then Paul says it's him we must proclaim to accomplish that. 
So going back to verse 27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. By proclaiming Jesus, who John in chapter 1 tells us is the very word of God, and this book tells us that everything that was created was created through him. We make disciples through him or through the word, right? So this is a Southern Baptist church. We're very aware of the Great Commission. So we need to be reminded in what that actually is. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So if the stewardship is to make the word of God fully known, if Christ is that mystery revealed, if he is the one we must proclaim so that we may be presented uh, before him, mature or perfect, then we need to be about the process of making that happen, which is the Great Commission. We're told to make disciples. Disciples are learners. And what do learners do? They learn from being taught. So that's what we do. We carry out the Great Commission by teaching. By proclaiming, by warning, and by doing that with all wisdom. So let's break that down a little bit just to see how we do that. So he says first in verse 28, that by proclaiming Jesus, or by uh, coupling that with the, the Great Commission, uh, making disciples, learners, teaching them, uh, we first warn, or what could also be called admonish. We counsel, based on the Word of God, uh, the behavior of his people or the characteristics of his people or more importantly, the heart of his people. So we are told to warn or admonish when there is things in us or about us that are not Christ-like or to warn each other if there's a path we're going down or even something that we believe that is incorrect that would bring harm or bring um, disdain to the name of Christ. And you could say we do all of that really in a, in a teaching manner, which means that we impart skills and knowledge. In other words, I can tell you who Christ is, and then I can help you apply that knowledge to your life so that you walk, talk, and look like him the image in which you have been reborn into. So we, we do that with wisdom, which would mean that we utilize that knowledge and even experience with common sense and insight. So we take what we know about Jesus and what it looks like to follow him and what it doesn't look like to follow him, and we input that into your current walk. Whatever it is, wherever you're at, wherever you're struggling, wherever, wherever you are, whatever background you come from, 
whatever job you're in, whatever family you're in, it is taking the Word of God and inputting that into your experience to be applied correctly. But the big question is, why? I'm always that person. I have to know why I'm doing something. Or what's the point in doing it? And that's where I fail in leadership sometimes. Is by communicating, why, why would we even do that? Are we just doing carrying out processes to carry out processes? Or what's the goal here? We'll go all the way back in chapter 1 of Colossians to verse 22. The second half of verse 22, these things are, we've been reconciled to God in order to, and in Jesus' body of flesh, by his death, we've been reconciled to God in order that he may, or that we may, present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He is going to receive a spotless bride. He will settle for nothing less. If he dwells in perfect holiness, if he has been the perfect, sovereign, eternal Lord since the beginning of time, who is bringing all things to its end, who will glorify himself for the sake of his name amongst all that he's created, then if he is going to receive a bride, then this bride is going to be holy, blameless, and above reproach. He is creating a holy people, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He's not going to exist or dwell in, in, a, in a land of unclean people. He's going to dwell eternally with a holy people created in that image. And so that, that teaching, admonishing, uh, applying the word of God with wisdom to your life and your walk so that you may look, look more like Christ when you speak and when you move or when you think and pray is so that you become this. For him. And we already we read that already in the second half of verse 28. Everyone is to be presented mature in Christ, which that word mature in the Greek means to be perfect. But it's the idea of that taking place over time. So that through experience and teaching in the midst over the course of a lifetime, you would be moving towards that. So that when you actually get the full revelation of Jesus face to faith, faith, then you're perfect. But not until then. We see in a mirror dimly, 1 Corinthians 13 says, but then face to face. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But we will fully know when we see him. And that's when perfection comes. But up until that point, we are maturing. So everything that takes place in the physical world, I believe, is an illustration of a greater spiritual reality. So the fact that we are born as infants and we grow up into adulthood and so that we look to our uh, elder statesmen, our seniors, as uh, having... Uh, more wisdom than the younger is because that's the direction we should be moving. So now couch that in the spiritual realm. 
You, you, Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, you must be born again. Okay. So we're born again in Christ by God's grace and mercy. So we start out as these infant babes, Paul tells us in Christ, and we, and we drink spiritual milk. We have the gospel, and we're amazed by it. And then as we mature, we start getting into the depths of that gospel. And so that milk becomes meat. We start examining the full glory of what there is. You know, you've often heard it said, the gospel is simple enough for a child to understand, but deep enough to where we'll never get to the depths of it. Absolutely true. And that is intended for your maturity. And you're not there yet until you are looking at him in the face. So that harkens back to last week where we have to realize that we are being sanctified. Our glorification is sure. That's, that's, that's where we will end up. But until we're there, over time, through experience and the teachings that come through that experience, we are being made mature. Now, now here's the full picture of this, okay? Here is where this is going to end up. Revelation 19, preparing for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And here it is. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So did you catch that? When Jesus finally receives his bride, which we know is the church, She's going to be there ready for him, clothed in fine linen, because it was granted her by the work of God, by the purpose of God, by the will of God for her to do so. And the method was the gifts that he gave to the church, taking and proclaiming the word of God, which is Jesus, to the bride, so that she is built up and equipped to further serve the purposes of God, which is that you would love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. The closer we get to doing those perfectly, the more like Christ we are. Because there is nobody who loved God perfectly except for him, and nobody who loved their neighbor as themselves like him. And so God is going to complete the work that he began. And then there will be that supper. 
and count yourself blessed, the angel said to John, if you've been invited to that marriage supper. So let's recap this for a minute before we look at verse 29. This is something that um, not only am I saying, but you should be saying. I exist for the body. And we mean the body of Christ. We have a stewardship to make the word of God fully known. There's a reason why we are instructed to encourage each other in 1 Thessalonians 4, to encourage each other with the words of hope, which is the gospel. Why we are also told to speak to each other in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. We all have this ministry, this stewardship, this responsibility before God to make his word fully known, to remind each other, to encourage each other, to admonish each other. We are we speak in the word together. We proclaim him and we warn and teach in wisdom so that you may be presented mature in Christ. Verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. We know that this, these words for toil and struggle are a uh, sweat-inducing, exhaustive form of labor. But notice what Paul says this is, or how it's done. It's done with his energy that he powerfully works within me. You try and carry out the stewardship God has given you in the body by your own strength, and you will quickly burn out, and you will fail. But if you are depending upon him to do this work in your heart, to, to birth these things in you that they would flow out of you, then you're on the right track. Because we already saw, right, in, in 2 Corinthians, that, that Paul's suffering so that he's reminded to depend on God. So, Work hard, but depend on him in the midst of it. In other words, take each step in service in faith that you are following his direction. I don't know how else to say it. Wake up every morning and cry out to him for the energy, for the presence of his spirit, for the wisdom, for the gentleness that you may need to carry out the stewardship that he's given you for that day for the body. In other words, we have to wake up every day in need. That's why America is kind of the hardest place to minister to the body. Because we have every other tangible need met in abundance what else do we need? But if you're living with these spiritual realities in mind, then you are, uh, or should be, supremely aware of how much you need him to complete this. I, I'm always reminded of what I uh, first was taught by the Lord when I was called to ministry. 
I was first aware how incapable uh, I was at carrying that out. And then I was secondly aware of that I wasn't going to do it by myself. So then I was able to say, okay, let's go. Because I'm not going to be alone doing it. And, uh, that story is often told about Charles Spurgeon, who, you know, his tabernacle in London in the 19th century, you know, had hundreds and thousands of members and had, he was overseeing 60 some areas of ministry, full time operations of ministry throughout London. And people were like, how do you do that? How do you have time to do that? And he responded that they forgot that there was two of them. He was referring to the fact that God was with him. God was working in him. God was the one responsible for carrying this thing out. And, and uh, Spurgeon was just submitting himself in, in humble obedience and faith to going and doing whatever the Lord had called him to go and do. Always looking back to him, always looking through him, always looking to him to carry out whatever it was. So let me... Um, communicate to you a vision. I hate that word. But I'm using it because we need to understand or see where we're going and how we get there. Then our purpose or mission is, is different. But look at the vision here. Let me articulate this for you. By making known to the saints the word of God through proclaiming, teaching, and modeling the truth, we hope to be presented to Christ, holy, spotless, blameless, and mature in him, to dwell in the glory of his presence, free from sin and death or any such thing, forever and ever. Amen. So this is how we do what we're doing so that we get to where we're going. So you have to keep that end in mind. We are going to dwell in the glory of his presence, free from sin and death or any such thing forever and ever. Amen. How do we get there? By making known to each other the word of God. And by doing it in this way. And so you have a role in that. You support that. You facilitate that. You speak that in whatever role you've been called to here. You are a part of the word ministry, somehow, some way. You can even go to Acts chapter 6, which may be the prototype for the first deacons. And why? Why? So that the word of God could continue. And what do we see when they get put in place? The word of God multiplies. And people are saved and the church is built up. So whatever you're doing here, safety committee, teaching children, whatever it is, you are, you are proclaiming the word or facilitating the proclaiming of the word. Or I would even argue in even those areas of ministry or service, you have the stewardship to proclaim the word in those settings. So we need to look at everything we do here in light of that. And always, always keep in mind what this is for. The, the sweetness 
of the glory of his presence. You have to have a goal. You have to have an end point. Or else you'll just be exhausted. You won't be sustained. Paul's always looking forward to that. If, if you are not weary of living in the midst of this world, then you may not be ready for heaven. Or he may not be your greatest treasure. This is nothing compared to him. Or, as Paul says in Romans 8, to the glory that is to be revealed. And even in Romans 8, all of creation is groaning together with eager longing, experiencing the pains of childbirth until all this is revealed. So if you want a, a cute, quick way to remember what I'm talking about here, this is, this is kind of the motto that I'm going to couch on. Um, you and I should be about Seeing you see him. Each one to one another. If you want to know why you belong as a member to FBC Holt, that's why. You exist to see each other see him. Because what Paul just said was, in order for you to be presented mature in Christ, in order for you to be holy and blameless and above reproach before him, then it's him we must proclaim. And he says it again in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, because the purpose of the evil one is that you wouldn't see his glory. So if we know the image that we're being made into, then we have our direction. And we have our purpose. And we have our plan. Proclaim Christ one to another so that we would each see him and we would be built up and made ready because we're going somewhere to dwell in his presence. So I, I pray that you would um, respond to him. Check yourself to see if that's what you're about and then we'll stand and sing together.